The talk tonight is about bringing the practice into the world. Um, Before I start the talk, I'd like to just everyone is supposed to attend the morning sitting tomorrow at 8.15. It's on the schedule, but just wanted to remind you of that. I spend about five months of my year here, as well as Stephen. I was born in this land, and I I really appreciate this hall, you know, the special feeling in this hall, the almost 20 years of all of us practicing together. There's a great uh, power in the repetition of this um, practice of awareness here and around these grounds in this place. I feel such a deep gratitude for being able to be with all of you for so long. There's such a power in the continuity of this long retreat. We all get to share so deeply with each other there's a power in, in this place, and it, it extends out to the neighbors in the community. It's so much fun for me to go around to the neighbors and talk with them how they see us here, because they get to know you too. They get to know if you're walking the loop for the first time, or that you've been doing it for three months. You know? <laughs> You'd be amazed at how much they notice you. And, you know, there's a feeling that's established here that's incredibly powerful. We've also received the warmest autumn in history. Uh, those of you who like to do walking meditation outside were very fortunate. Uh, it takes a lot of protection to do this practice for three months and to go so deeply inside. It takes a deep commitment from all of you. And there's an incredible karma of us all being here together that's way beyond our ability to understand. Yet we can appreciate that it's wonderful, incredibly wonderful, to be here together. It's quite bittersweet to move into the world of talking, into the world of action and doing from this silent space. I'd like to thank you all for being so sincere and working so hard. It's very difficult to find peace in this world, in this human world. And just to have the conditions that allow us to be here, it's, it takes rare conditions just to survive in this world, never mind to be able to devote all of our energy into, into really going so deep inside. It's so rare. And we haven't had to speak for a long time. We'll be moving from this silent, quiet, non-doing space 
into activity. The sound of people communicating, relating. Most people at this point experience some fear in moving into this other world of activity. One of the perspectives I like to keep reminding people of in terms of this shift is that they're really, on a very deep level, there's no beginning and no ending. There's a perspective of anatta um, that um, is very clearly described in this poem by Kozan, who died at the age of 77. He lived in the 1300s. Empty-handed, I entered the world. Barefoot, I leave it. My coming, my going, two simple happenings that got entangled. (laughs) That's light. That's so light. And that's one way we can hold this shifting of the worlds, that it's not really shifting at all. There's no beginning, no end. There's no one who takes birth or dies. There's just this moment-to-moment change that we glue together and make into solid, separate events and call it a beginning and an end. There's different ways to see the retreat from many levels. So one can see that we're not changing anything, that things will be the same, and that things will be different. So things will be the same and that we're just going to be continuing to see and hear and taste and touch and think. (laughs) Um, And we will still be doing the practice. We'll be doing mindfulness. We'll be practicing metta, compassion, sympathetic joy, equanimity. How is it different? Mostly we'll be shifting into less protected environments. It's not so easy to be quiet. Um, In this womb-like sacred space, we get to face our aloneness and feel this deep interconnectedness with everyone, with all of life. It's a very, very special space here. As Steve usually says at this point, people aren't doing lifting, moving, and placing out there. Most important is to not overdo it talking. And for me, that's the hardest thing in moving out of retreat. I tend to not stop talking once I start. Uh, And you'll find that you might feel resistance to talking, but it is quite difficult once you start to stop. (laughs) So uh, we will be all taking turns doing the sittings during the days and the uh, retreat in the next days. And you'll notice us come around with a bell the same bell that you've been coming around with uh, 
if we notice you're not coming into the hall. Just to gently (laughs) encourage you to let go of talking and to come and sit. It's, it's really helpful to try to keep the schedule. Uh, it's, it's so easy to blast oneself out. And I remember uh, last year there was someone who said that you know, she had been so quiet, and every time she came to sit, everything she said kept echoing and echoing and echoing over and over in her mind. You know, you don't realize how, power, how quiet you are And it really helps to take the quiet um, after the talking, or um, you'll feel like uh, you went too far. If you tend to get a headache, which is the only thing that can really happen, because we're not used to taking in so much stimuli, you can always take an aspirin. (laughs) It really helps to take the quiet time so that you can explore this incredible world of shifting into the world of talking. You know, we so rarely get the opportunity to do this. Usually we end a retreat and we're out. Uh, and this will help you to see your relationship to speech on a very deep level. The first time I was here for a long retreat, when um, this night came, I went out into the woods and slept outside uh, because I had such aversion to breaking silence. Um, Mostly what I notice in breaking silence is how easy it is to be casual with our speech. It's so easy to start talking about someone who isn't present. Uh, and I'd like to encourage you to at least try at the beginning to see if you can have a conversation with someone the first few days without talking about someone who isn't present. Sometimes the conversation doesn't go very far. Uh, <laughs> and that's interesting in itself. Even if you just took it as a discipline to practice that for five minutes of a conversation and then start talking about other people, (laughs) whatever, (laughs) however long you want to extend it, it really helps bring the uh, speaking into the present moment. It's it's a great thing to practice, to try. not harming others with our speech. <clears throat> it's, it's, it's easy to be casual, and then it can be pretty easy also to go into a world of harm with our speech. So it's a great opportunity not to be judgmental with this, uh, but to just notice as we go back into silence and then come out, we go back into silence to come out. How do we relate to what we're talking to in retrospect? You know, what, what was it like? We learned so much from this part of the retreat. What felt light? What felt right? What didn't? So if we can do this practicing with our speech, with the intention to understand 
rather than to judge. It's a great, it's a great time to be here. When we actually leave the retreat, there can be a tendency to be over-exuberant with um, the desire to turn other people on to the practice. Uh, You'll notice you want to talk a lot, but if you look really closely at what you can share or the things that happened, you really can't get across to people who haven't done the practice what happened. What I notice, though, is that people are very affected by our ability to listen. We come from such space and such silence here that the greatest gift that you can give to people is your ability to listen. And you'll find that people will be interested over time in the practice by that kind of effect in you. You know, people are affected by actual changes in us, not so much by, we, by what we say. Um, raising children, you'll notice that no matter how much you say something, what they learn is by how we act. <laughs> it's like they're little um, mirrors of us, which can be horrifying <laughs> at times. Uh, and what... Uh, you can learn again in this process, in the, in the months of coming out from the retreat, is to see that people are most affected by what we do, how we listen, not by um, being a missionary. The world really doesn't need any more missionaries. It's also helpful to be aware of taking a short-range view of any changes in us and to try to keep a long-range view because there are ways in which we judge ourselves that can be frustrating at times. Even, Even before the retreat ends, you know, there are some people who are, I will hear, feeling regret about the retreat, what they didn't get, what they didn't do. Maybe um, they slept too much or didn't sleep too much. Or, you know, we always have this feeling that it wasn't quite enough. You know, we didn't do quite enough or we didn't get quite enough. Uh, and, it, you know, it, it falls into the category of the army of Mara of dissatisfaction. Dissatisfaction is, it's too hot, it's too cold, we're too young, we're too old. You know, there's never that feeling that things are quite right. Uh, And so I'd like to read a poem by Rumi um, about this. Maybe we don't feel enlightened enough. Failure is the key to the kingdom within. Failure is the key to the kingdom within. Your prayer should be, break the legs of what I want to happen. Humiliate my desire. Eat me like candy. It's spring. And finally, I have no will. 
letting go of control. So if you don't feel satisfied, it's the key to the kingdom within. What we want to happen versus what happened. It's best to take a long-range view of our practice um, because it's difficult to be a human being in this world. And what we're doing in the practice is opening to how life really is rather than how we want it to be. And we do this through mindfulness. The mindfulness is the ability to see clearly uh, what's happening in the moment. And out of that seeing clearly, we deepen our understanding of how life is. There's deeper and deeper levels of understanding possible. We never can feel finished. And what deeply changes for us over time is how we relate to experience. The more we understand how life is, the more we can live in peace rather than at war with this human world. There's less struggle, less fighting, and more of this um, sweet, unconditional acceptance of how life is. The Brahma Viharas, practicing the loving kindness and the compassion, the empathetic joy and the equanimity, are all about relationship, all about interconnectedness. And mostly we teach them so that we can learn more about self-acceptance. There's so much self-hatred in this world. Um, There's so much, so many people being so hard on themselves. And the, the Brahma Viharas are meant to help soften us so that we can accept how we are so we can accept how life is. And it's out of the acceptance that we can explore how life is. We can't explore if we're not accepting. The, the pure exploration um, is what understanding comes out of. you'll probably find that very few human beings understand why they experience so little peace in their hearts, why there's so little love in their life. And we, on the long retreats, really get a glimpse into what's happening under the surface. And we start to really see the relationship between moment-to-moment consciousness, the unpleasant, pleasant, and neutral feelings that happen each moment of consciousness. And when we're not aware of what's happening in the moment, which usually is hidden from us, we see that the suffering is merely the reacting to the pleasant by holding on. The suffering is the attachment and the, the suffering is the reacting to the unpleasantness in this human world with fear or aversion, with withdrawing or pushing away 
So we have very little acceptance of this suffering in ourselves, and we often have very little acceptance of attachment, aversion in others. You know, we have to make space for it in ourselves as well as for others. John Lennon said, love is forgiving each other every five minutes. That's about what's happening. This is a quote from a hell's angel. (laughs) Hell, I ain't prejudiced. I hate everybody. Forgiveness. There's so much attachment, aversion flying around this human world. There is so much suffering. Um, and it does require, for, you know, like this incredible forgiveness for just being here in this world. There's a teacher named Deepama that you've probably heard us all talk about. Um, she had this amazing balance of warmth and coolness. She had this, she'd really worked at developing the metta, and this warmth was um, kind of oozing from her. And then there was this coolness, this deep peace, and they were in this kind of perfect balance, this balance of interconnectedness and peace. She loved to give blessings. After, just before she died, actually, I had a dream with her in the dream. And I was having a dream about um, one of the most difficult people in my life. And in the dream, which was incredibly vivid, she asked me to bow down to the person. And she had me put my forehead right at this person's feet, all the way to the floor. And then she said uh, to send loving kindness to this person. Uh, And her presence was so powerful in the dream, I just woke up. uh, (laughs) I was like, oh. Uh, And I couldn't at that time actually do it. And I couldn't at that time go up to this person and put my forehead (laughs) to the person's feet. I hadn't Uh, developed enough metta in my life for that. And I was okay with that. I didn't push myself to do what she had said to do. But I realized it was a message to just keep doing the metta. It was hard enough for me to do it from my zafu, you know, a thousand miles away. (laughs) Never mind. Go right up to the person and, and bow like that. What's interesting is, on a long-range view, things do change. At this point, it would be quite fine for me to do that. And it isn't something that I felt like I should have to do or push myself to do. I forgot about it. But in the time since that dream happened, it would be just so easy from the power of doing the metta practice in my own rhythm in my own time. 
so much of the teaching is being able to let go of control and surrender to how it's happening for us and to do the best we can and to just take one step and another step. If we really listen to our heart, if we can do that, you know, each step is usually possible. If we try to project, you know, all of the mindfulness and the metta and all of the practice into the future, it's impossible. It's too much. It's it's just one moment at a time, one step at a time. Some people have an idea that practice on retreat is more important than practice in the world. Um, But that's really just an illusion. One of the most valuable insights that one can understand in the Vipassana practice is that each moment of our life is equally important. And to feel that one moment or one way is more valuable than another is really taking away um, the preciousness of this teaching. Each moment of our life, it's possible to be awake. It's really simple. You know, it's either we're awake or we're asleep. And this won't stop. It's not going to stop tomorrow at 8.15, or it's not going to stop 20 minutes from now. The practice is practice. It flows. So, of course, I would encourage you to sit every day formally uh, and to keep working with the Brahma Viharas and the mindfulness as much as you can, as much as you remember. We can practice forgiveness, remembering that forgiveness is a process, not a should. It's okay at times when we're not able to forgive. You know, it's possible to have an awareness that if we see we can't forgive, that's okay. You don't push it. That's having metta for ourselves. One of the most wonderful things about being on retreat, even though people irritate us, is how much like family we are and how close we are with each other, even though we haven't talked. And that the realization that sangha is everything, and that spiritual loneliness is so painful to do this practice alone is literally impossible. And we really affect each other so deeply. And one of the things that we can practice besides formal sittings, the Brahma Viharas, and forgiveness, <coughs> is being a spiritual friend to somebody, being a benefactor to somebody. It's not necessarily a big commitment. It could be a letter that you write somebody in prison who's lonely.
spiritual friends are like a lifeline for us. They mirror our deep motivation to be free and to understand. And they're so important that any way that you can be that for somebody else, whether it's just a moment or several moments or over weeks or years, it doesn't matter the time expenditure. What matters is the quality of the heart in the moment. And that that really affects this world very deeply. It could be a conversation on a bus ride. I had an experience um, when I worked at a theater, an outdoor theater in high school. Um, I was an usherette. uh, And people like Stevie Wonder and Jimi Hendrix and the Supremes came to play there. there was a man named Humasakila who wasn't very famous then. He's a man from South Africa who <clears throat> plays great music. And I used to stand in the place where the musicians would come down onto the stage. Uh, and I was just 16. And none of the musicians or entertainers would ever stop to talk with me. But toward the end, Humasakila came for a week. And every night, he'd come to speak with me for about an hour before the show started. And he just took a genuine interest in me. It was the first time a man in my life had ever done that. Every night, just just interested in me in a, in a caring way. He affected me so profoundly. And it wasn't a big commitment. And later, you know, recently in my life, I've heard that he's very interested in helping teenagers. And I didn't, you know, I didn't know that. Um, I just know that he helped me a lot and helped me to keep going in my life. There's a Native American tribe called Yurok, and this is um, from their healing ritual, it said that being true to yourself in this tribe means giving your best to help a person in need. Being true to yourself is the one and only Yurok law. Only one law in their tribe is being true to themselves. And being true to themselves means giving their best to help somebody in need. Can you imagine if we just had one law in this country? (laughs) And we thought they were uncivilized. Before I came on staff here at IMS in 1978, I had lived in northern Maine for a while. And when I went back, there was no sangha up there. And I missed sangha a lot. I had come down to help um, Deepama at the time, and I asked her about this, and she said, with these wonderful eyes, she said, 
the Dharma is everywhere. I came back down here anyway. <laughs> I felt that I missed Sangha. Um, but her teaching was very, always absolute, you know, that the Dharma is everywhere. It doesn't matter where you are. But I think that Sangha for us is very important. And I had to give up a teaching job that I had up there. And I went, I came to a city nearby here, got a job working with um, these men, these three men who'd been in the mental hospital for 25 years. And the job was going into the hospital and bringing these men out and getting them set in an apartment to help them adjust to our culture. I wasn't doing such a <laughs> We were friends. <laughs> and then he said, he was really trying to figure me out. He said, are you one of us or are you one of them? And he was really right there, totally in the moment. We're seeing really clearly. And I said, well, I'm not really one of us. I'm <laughs> not really one of you. You know, I'm somewhere in between. So then he said, this was the clincher. He said, is this a job or are you going to be my friend? And it was, it was really painful for me. You know, it was like he was really getting at, what's your intention here? You know, I'm, I'm a really hurt human being and I want to know, you know, if I'm going to open up to you, are you going to be my friend? Uh, and it just was so powerful an experience for me. Um, again, that kind of imagery that we have of people in hospitals of not being very clear. He was <laughs> the most clear person I'd ever met. Right in there, right away, quick. Um, and it was a very, one of the most interesting years I'd ever spent because in some ways the question is the same or different, you know, is the, re- the retreat ending when you leave here, is it going to be the same or is it going to be different? Or are these people who are in the category of disabled mentally, are they the same or are they different? And it was like, basically, there was a way in which I could see that their rate of change was a bit slower than mine, but not that much, really. Uh, And it was a hard situation, because my relationship to the situation was very different than the staff I was with. Um, The program was designed to create a lot of change in their lives, which you know, they weren't particularly (laughs) interested in at all. Uh, One of the things that really helped me was to be in the moment and to not be attached to a result. And that the kind of work, that's the kind of work where those programs have 100% burnout. They have 100% turnover. By the time the year ended, the whole staff was gone. So that question, are you my friend or is this a job, was really real for this man. There was another man in the program that 
his father had put him in the hospital when he was 18. He'd been in there 25 years. He only got one visit a year for 25 years at Christmas from his father for five minutes. They're really not easy stories. Uh, and the whole, he used to um, walk up and down the parking lot in this apartment um, outside, which the staff considered not such good behavior. And he'd walk up and down the parking lot with this wooden um, square plaque. And he called it his plaque, and he had made it in the hospital. And it was painted this beautiful color blue. It's like, like hieroglyphics in the corner. So every day, it was sort of like, he looked like he was doing walking meditation to me. He'd be walking up and down the uh, parking lot, and the staff's, one of the goals was to get him to stop, but he wouldn't stop. <laughs> so one afternoon, it took me a whole year to do something clear with him. It took me one year. And there was a moment where the sun was out, and he'd been doing walking meditation with his plaque. And he came in, uh, and I looked at him, and I just saw, I saw clearly, and I went, wow, that's a really beautiful color blue. You know, and he just completely changed me, because I was interested in the plaque. Instead of trying to get him to put it away and stop walking with it, it was beautiful. He, you know, it was so, it was so stupid. I mean, it took me a year to say to get it. You know, he really loved this thing. Uh, and after that moment, everything changed. And he'd never changed out of the clothes that he had brought from the hospital. He went upstairs. He put all blue clothes on. He started talking. You know, it was just like incredible. Um, but it took a year. And it, the, these are. These are the moments, these are the moments that are special in life, and they come out of being in the moment. They come out of seeing clearly. And however this happens, it, does, it might be that you're playing with a child in a playground that you only play with once in your life. And the, there doesn't have to be you know, the commitment that we often are so afraid of in our culture at this time. They're just genuine moments of interest. That's what a spiritual friend is. Whether it's with ourselves or with another, what matters is our motivation. And we're only free in this world if our motivation has changed. Freedom of spirit is any time we're open to what's happening in the present moment and we're willing to be with it. That's the clear motivation. In terms of recommendations, um, what we can practice, we can practice being a spiritual friend, we can practice forgiveness, and all of the other things that we've learned to do here. We can also remember each day to get in touch with our deepest motivation. It's real easy to forget, and we usually will forget it many times in a day. And I find that maybe I'll 
be righteous about something, or maybe you know, we'll get lost in a fantasy, or maybe we'll speak harshly about someone, or maybe we'll lose it with somebody at work. But we, we do, we lose it. You know, we're mindful for a while, and then we lose it. And even if we lose it in a very mild way, um, it's really important to have that touchstone, even if we've lost the thread of it, you know, that what we're trying to do is understand and that we're doing the best we can. We're trying to understand, we're trying not to hurt each other, we're trying not to hurt ourselves. It's usually very simple. Uh, I find for myself that remembering to be in touch with what I'm really deeply uh, motivated for in this lifetime helps me whenever I lose the thread. We're not doing this by ourselves. The Dharma really is everywhere. The truth is everywhere. And it's out of our understanding that compassion comes. Hopefully, one of the things we've learned on the retreat is that it doesn't really take much to be happy. Mostly what I see people learn over time is to keep their practice pretty simple and to keep their life as simple as possible. Because if you look at what makes you happy or brings happiness, it might be a fresh bowl of popcorn or the sound of a bird or when somebody does take the time to really be with you. These things don't cost much, uh, but they take a certain quality of attention, and they take a certain simplicity. The practice of being in the moment, of being intimate with our moment-to-moment experience, is extraordinarily simple, but it's very hard to remember to do. And so if you remember to try to keep it simple, it's much easier than if it's complicated in our mind. So the motivation matters the most. Remembering that our motivation is to understand and to be kind. Sometimes we think, if somebody asks us when we come out, you know, well, how was your meditation retreat? How, how can you describe it? You know, it's like so much happens. In three months, well, I listened to the heat. <laughs> People aren't so impressed, really. <laughs> but they, you know, we had a really good meal two weeks into the retreat. I mean, what can you say on one level? Um, this is a quotation from Black Elk, um, who most of you have probably heard of. He's a Native American that um, had a great vision when he went out in his vision quest. And this is what he said about it. While I stood there, I saw more than I can tell. And I, st- I understood more than I saw, 
for I was seeing in a sacred manner the shapes of all things in the spirit and the shape of all shapes as they must live together like one being. Remember that you will have seen much more than you can ever tell. Black Elk also said that our vision isn't complete till we understand it over our lifetime and that we act it out, we share it with other people. Living what we have come to understood out isn't so easy either. Brooke Madison Eagle, who's a a Native woman um, of our generation, says about the quest for vision, the traditional Indians prayed always this, not only for myself do I ask this grandfather, great spirit, but that the people may live, that the people may live. And we're doing this for all beings. The vision isn't complete until we do go out and share what we've learned with others. And again, it's not what we can say that will matter, and it will be very individual for each of us, how we share it, how we express it. I had a neighbor in northern Maine who never finished junior high school, but she's one of the most spiritually mature people I've ever met. And I remind you that just because a person might not do a particular, this particular practice, that doesn't mean anything. Um, uh, in some ways, she could be called a fundamentalist Christian, and she was more developed than a lot of people I see in this practice. She really um, had kindness down. Uh, And when I was first up there, in the area we went into in northern Maine, um, uh, (laughs) it was pretty hard to be considered local there. You know, it was like it was an impossible task to ever be uh, considered part of the community. It was pretty narrow. And most of us looked pretty different than the people up there and acted quite differently, to put it mildly. And most of the people in that area thought we were the weirdest things in the world and didn't want to have so much to do with us when we first moved up there. And she was our closest neighbor. And I could tell that it was crossing a barrier that was miles and miles for her to come up to me and invite us to dinner. Uh, it was it was just... it was really hard for her, but she came up and she invited, there were 13 of us, 13 of us to dinner, and I just said, you you sure? (laughs) She said, yep, I'm just being neighborly. Uh, And her neighborly was just turned into this constant shower of kindness. I mean, (laughs) her neighborly, uh, being neighborly, was more kind than I'd ever experienced from anybody. she really knew what Christian was. You know, she lived it. She lived out the meaning of it. 
of not being separate. And I think that for us human beings, kindness can be one of the most difficult things, especially with speech. And it's very much a sign of spiritual maturity. Um, Wisdom and compassion express themselves in kindness. It's kindness is the greatest gift we can give to this world. So we can practice um, sitting formally every day, sitting on the cushion and doing the Brahma Viharas. They They all help us express kindness in this world, forgiveness, uh, being a spiritual friend, and staying in touch with our deepest intentions um, help us live in this world with kindness. Most of us, um, at least in the West, aren't becoming monks and nuns. And I think one of the most difficult challenges for us um, in this world is the pace that's going um, in this culture and in the world. Uh, There's a pace that's so crazy as we move toward the year 2000. And sometimes I think karmically that maybe we're not becoming monks and nuns in this world is because the world really needs us to bring out this compassion and slowing down the mindfulness. It's like it's just getting so fast. Our planet probably won't make it if we don't bring out this energy of slowing down and being simple and knowing what happiness is. Just being mindful in the world is a gift. It's everything. Our work is our altar. Our life is our altar. Um, Being in, around Steve's family in Hawaii, his mother has incredible uh, mindfulness in her house, in her home, in her life that Steve has learned from her. And I really appreciate being around. Uh, he has a care that he brings to his moment-to-moment life that, for me, I kind of had the world of retreat separated from the world of my life. Uh, and I'd rush through the dishes and rush through, you know, the cleaning of the house and <laughs> get it done, get it done, get it done. Uh, and his family, you know, his mother, and he, he, they just bring this incredible care to whatever they do. No rush, no hurry. Um, and it was so different than how I was raised. But it's, it's the whole key to bring the practice into our life is to see that whatever we're doing is our altar. It's our meditation hall, our workplace, our home. And life can get very busy. I have a friend that is a lawyer for the mentally disabled. He's the one who got me that job years ago. 
And he has several law offices now in the state, and he's constantly driving around, and his wife, and he just had a young a baby. And um, he told me recently that late at night when he's driving on the Massachusetts Turnpike, uh, before he comes home, he'll stop at a truck stop and meditate. And it's, it was, I felt so inspired by that, you know, that no matter what, no matter how busy he is, he takes the time. Even, he said he develops really good concentration until one of the trucks turns on their lights and then it wakes him up and he decides to go home. Um, but life can be pretty busy out there. And if it's just getting a little meditation in the bathroom or at a truck stop, if it gets that busy, remember that that's a lot. You can take five minutes, ten minutes, twenty minutes. Whatever you can do is enough. So we need to have the courage to take time for the things in our culture um, that our culture doesn't necessarily value. Slowing down, stillness, mindfulness in our life, um, valuing relationships, um, taking the time to be interested in each other, staying in touch with ourselves, really remembering to value what has been so powerful for you here. Where we go, there might not be any bells to remind you to come back to yourself. So it's important to find whatever you can in your daily life, you know, to bring yourself back to yourself, little touchstones. Part of slowing down and taking care of ourselves and each other, of our children. All children are our children, of our elders. All elders are our elders. Um, Taking care of our home planet. Uh, Taking care happens out of awareness. This awareness is the light that we bring into the world. When my nephew came back from the Persian Gulf War, the day he came back, uh, he was describing when he first landed there, uh, he went for a swim in the Persian Gulf, and the ocean was clear and blue and just beautiful. And the day he left, um, there was so much oil from the oil spills um, on the water. And he threw a rock out into the water, and the rock didn't sink. And of course, I could say a lot about that war. um, But there's such a drive for more and more energy, and such a drive for more comfort, more money, more conveniences, uh, faster and faster. It's so easy to get caught in more and more stimulation. Uh, And I think that the uh, the gift 
that we can bring to this world is that we know that each step means if we're mindful of a step, we're in the holy land. If we're mindful of a breath, that's the holy land. It doesn't matter where we are, um, but we bring that quality of care to this world. And the world needs that so much. It's not, we're not just doing this for ourselves. We really affect each other very deeply. I'd like to end with a quotation from Chief Seattle, a great uh, Native American chief. Teach your children what we have taught our children, that the earth is our mother. Whatever befalls the earth befalls the sons and daughters of the earth. If men spit upon the ground, they spit upon themselves. This we know. The earth does not belong to us. We belong to the earth. This we know. All things are connected, like the blood which unites one family. All things are connected. Whatever befalls the earth befalls the sons and daughters of the earth. We did not weave the web of life. We are merely a strand in it. Whatever we do to the web, we do to ourselves. Let's sit for a few minutes. 